Hello, and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? The loss of personal freedom? State surveillance? Well, we think of tea, pubs, and the common toad. Join us, and we'll tell you why. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Lewis, and I'm here with my co-host, Simon. And today we're going to be discussing another essay by George Orwell, and it's a big one. But first, Simon, I think it is not unreasonable of me to make an inquiry vis-a-vis your feelings at the present time, whether they be affected by the zeitgeist or more personal matters. (laughs) I see what you're doing there. Yes, I'm well, thanks. Life is good. I'm very happy with um, the response we received from the first episode we released of the Orwellian podcast. It's given me hope that we're doing something right and more motivation to go on in the future. Yes, and if you haven't written to us, uh, we'd really love to hear from you. Comments, reactions, your own ideas about Orwell and his works. Today we are going to be discussing politics and the English language. This was first published in Payment's book, uh, 11th of December 1945, but then it was published again very soon after in Horizon in April 1946. Uh, Simon chose this essay. Uh, Simon, why did you choose this essay? Well, there's two reasons, Lewis. First of all, it's, I'd say it's in his top five most famous essays. Also, it's polemic, which is always good for something like a podcast. Uh, And I should say that... um, the, the, the area that I work in is quite related to this, so it's something that's quite close to me and I feel quite strongly about, and it's really interesting to discuss. Yes, this is one of Orwell's big essays, isn't it? I would even go so far as to say that if you want to understand Orwell, the writer, and indeed Orwell, the man, then this is one of the three essays you should read. What the other two are, we might discuss some other time. And also, if, you, if you've read his famous novel, 1984, but not read this essay, read this essay. And it shows, because it was written just before he started on 1984, and it really does give you a, an indication of what he was thinking with regards to a lot of the themes in 1984, such as Newspeak. So, let's get into it. Let's do so. I mean, I think the question I want to ask you first, Lewis, is, having read the essay probably many times, what do you consider to be the major themes sincerity, the need to be sincere in your writing, uh, as Orwell sees it. Uh, I think this is very much Orwell's reaction against the propaganda culture of the war period Mm -hmm. and the use of the English language for propaganda purposes. And I think we really see here Orwell's mental independence from ideologies. He was a socialist, he was left-wing, but he was very much non-partisan. And certainly, unlike a lot of the intellectuals of his time, he was not particularly pro-Soviet, at least not pro-Stalin. So I think we see that in his arguments. Yeah, everything you said is exactly what I was thinking myself. The, The essay focuses on political language, hence the title Politics and the English Language. And according to Orwell, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. Mm, I like that. And he also says, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defence of the indefensible. Does that sound familiar to you? It does. And I think we're really going to touch on how the English language then and now has been subordinated to propaganda and to simplifying very complex situations. Um, Reading this essay just made me think, make America great again, take back control, even older slogans such as liberté, égalité, fraternité, not English, but um, you can make the same point, I think, with any language, really. Exactly. I mean, he talks about the insincerity of writing is causing the decline of the English language. And I think we could say in any language, and it's various writers within that language. And as the language declines, foolish thoughts become even easier. He said, make America great again, and, and, and slogans such as that. Which in, in itself is not a, a foolish thought, but 
what we're talking about is the simplification, the oversimplification of complex political truths for the benefit of those in power or those who want power. So with those themes in mind, something I would encourage the listener to do as they listen to this podcast and go on to think about it afterwards would be think about does language experience natural growth or is it shaped for our own purposes? Which would you say Orwell goes towards? He definitely goes towards the idea of language as something we can shape for our use. He makes uh, the point that if a language declines, it's more likely for political or economic reasons. Um, and that put me, being Scottish, that put me in mind very much of, say, the Scots language or Gaelic, which declined for political and economic reasons. Although uh, lots of people like to argue that it's just because English is inherently better. But anyway, that's going off on a tangent. Yeah. I mean, as a disclaimer, I should mention here that in, within my research, I tend to go the other direction that language experiences natural growth and natural evolution. But don't you think there's a big difference here between what Orwell's saying about spoken language and written language? Because I would be prepared to say that spoken language is much more of a natural growth than written language is. But which reflects which? What would you say? I, I would say spoken language is reflecting written language in this context of politics. So should we dive into the essay? Yes. What, what we we'll do is we'll go through it systematically and intersperse that with our own ideas and maybe a bit of explanation of what he was saying. And we should apologise forwith for any jargon. So at the beginning of the essay, he gives five examples of passages by authors which demonstrate his thoughts of the decline of the English language. Uh, they're, they're quite long passages, so for this podcast we won't go through all of them, but in the first passage, he calls out how there's too many negatives, five negatives within just 53 words. And he, he, he talks about how they're superfluous and they make nonsense of the whole passage. And how about in the second? In the second, uh, he is showing us an example of writing which uses what he calls stale idioms or metaphors that have appeared in print so many times that they are no longer fresh images and they no longer make you think. In fact, his argument is that these metaphors are so familiar that you just kind of pass by them without really thinking about what the writer is actually trying to say. And if the listeners get the chance to read his third passage, he describes it as simply meaningless. And the fourth? <laughs> the fourth passage is very much polemic. It is one which uses jargon, uh, specifically in this case, the jargon of communist pamphlets. Yeah. Words like fascist and bestial and uh, petit bourgeois, that sort of thing. <laughs> and in the fifth and final passage, of which he gives an example, he says that words and meaning have almost parted company. Mm. People who write in this manner usually have a general emotional meaning. They dislike one thing and want to express solidarity with another but they are not interested in the detail of what they are actually saying. So from, we've just given you his brief criticism of those passages, but hopefully you can understand where he's going with this. And then the essay gets into the nitty gritty and he gives four examples of what he despises in the use of modern English. When I say modern, contemporary modern for him in 1946. Yeah. But, but it carries on, the idea of carry on. And he gives four, which are dying metaphors, operators or verbal false limbs, pretentious diction, and meaningless words. So Lewis, with regards to dying metaphors, what did you pick up from that? I think the reason that Orwell focuses on the dying metaphors is, and we'll see this later on, he is very concerned about the, what's the word, the divide between seeing the world in concrete terms and expressing that using concrete language and seeing the world in abstract terms and expressing that in abstract language. He says that there's a whole host of what he calls worn out metaphors. Mm -hmm. These include things like ring the changes on, take up the cudgels for, 
grist to the mill, that sort of thing. Have you ever used any of those? Oh, yes. But maybe more in speech than in writing. What do you think of this? With those examples you've given, he talks about how most of these dying metaphors won't be in circulation much longer. Examples he gives are ride roughshod over, no axe to grind. You know, 2021, I have to say, they are still very much in circulation. So his nitpicking of metaphors was a bit off the mark. But I see what he's saying, because why do we use metaphors? We, we use metaphors to conjure an image that the reader can use to aid their understanding and, mit- and, and meaning of the written word. And, but, sorry, you go on. Oh, sorry, yeah, but, but people are using metaphors not with that in mind in political language, hence the, the double metaphor. Which, which has no logic to it at all. Yes, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, mm-hmm. but late, again, a great example of Orwellian humour. Later on, he gives an example of the dying metaphor being something like, uh, the fascist octopus has sung its swan song, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Orwell is excellent at original metaphors. He, For example, here he mentions how if you use words not for the sake of their meaning, but because they just come ready-made to your mind. It's like, this is his metaphor, it's like tacking together the sections of a prefabricated hen house. (laughs) That really struck a chord with me, because again, putting this in context after the war, the whole idea of prefabrication, of make, do and mend, of doing the best you can with poor materials. It seems like even the writers are trying to do the best they can with poor materials, but Orwell clearly thinks that they can and should try harder. Yes, I I agree, which I think brings us on nicely to the next point, which is that of operators or verbal false limbs. So about this second point of operators and verbal false limbs, what, what are your main thoughts? Orwell seems very keen on simplicity. He points out that the operators or verbal false limbs, phrases like render inoperative, militate against, they seem to be designed to cut out or replace simple verbs. And again, this is another key part of the essay. Orwell believes that no matter how complex the ideas you're expressing are, uh, the language you use to express them should be simple. That, that's what I take. And he talks about how banal statements are being made to look profound. And he, he doesn't like the use of lazy adverbs, lazy adjectives. And the commentator Christopher Hitchin, very funnily, who was a big Orwell fan himself, but very funnily said with regards to this, look at the very first page of 1984 and how, how he describes the protagonist as having ruggedly handsome features. So on the first page of his most important novel, he's contradicting himself in the essay he wrote about language. But he does go on in this essay to say, throughout this essay, I have no doubt committed the errors of which I am writing about. He talks about how the passive is being used over the active. What's wrong with that, Luke? If you don't know how to end your sentence, or if you don't know how to express what you want to express, it can make your sentence sound a bit more, not profound, but maybe final, poetic. Uh, That's how I see it. Uh, What about you? No, I agree with you. That's why he he prefers the active, because it's it's plainer, isn't it? Mm. It's more to the point. But I'll tell you an interesting statistic that was done. A linguistic organisation did a study of thousands of essays written for The Horizon and other journals for which Orwell uh, contributed. And 13% of them were written in the passive. Do you know what the percentage is in this essay? 20%. 20% so even in this essay, he's using more than the average of passive being used at that time, which I find interesting. But I, I suppose if you nitpick things like that, you're going to find faults everywhere. You mentioned simplicity there. Why do you think Orwell is so keen on simplicity in his writing. It takes away the capacity for politicians, propagandists, spin doctors 
to use discourse to influence. With simplicity, there's more direct meaning, which the general populace can take at face value. Mm. Although, of course, Orwell has been used by uh, politicians, uh, we might say propagandists on the right and the left, yeah. uh, since his death. I think he also wants to reach the largest audience. I think he once said, never write for the few, write for the many. Mm. And when you're writing or doing anything for the many, simplicity is, is key to that. This made me think very much of academic discourse. It's been a while since I was in academia as a student. You have more experience of it than I do, Simon. Do you think academic discourse is willfully, deliberately difficult? Yes, I do. I've written an example here from something I once read, and I'd like you to tell me what this means. Right. This is from an academic article. We see in this rehearsal of Foucault that contemporary criticism cherishes the, the displacement both of dialects by diacritics and of totalized organic representations of history by comprehensive graphs of affiliated disciples in their episteme. You did well to get through that. Um, <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> that was a genuine uh, sentence in, in an article I was reading, and I still can't tell you what it means. I'm sorry, I, I drifted off. Exactly. Um, but I think I agree with what you've just said by giving that as an example. And you... brings us on to the next point, actually, that of pretentious diction. So what we mean by pretentious diction, well, according to Orwell, is that it, it's used to make biases look impartial and scientific. What are your thoughts on pretentious diction? I am with Orwell here. We, we, I suppose we'll get into editorialising later, but I just wanted to bring up this point he makes about bad writers, and I'm quoting him here, bad writers, and especially scientific, political, and sociological writers, are nearly always haunted by the notion that Latin or Greek words are grander than and I'm emphasising this word here, Saxon ones. Simon, is there a racial or just even ideological element to his preference for so-called Saxon words over foreign words? Uh, is this a case of make English great again? What, what is the English language if it's not an amalgamation of other languages? where we've taken words from Germanic, Saxon languages, French, Latin, Spanish, Italian, Dutch, Gaelic languages. So I don't really understand his point here. I, I, well, I do understand it, that he, when people use a foreign equivalent of a word, they're doing it with the meaning to make it sound more scientific, to give it more gravitas. Can you think an example of that, where a foreign word would be used over a... Saxon word, as he terms it. Well, earlier, um, when I made my hilarious introduction to the podcast, I used the word zeitgeist. Whereas in Saxon, it would be... Timeghost. No, it would be <laughs> uh, spirit of the age. Yes. But actually, I have, to, I have to argue with you there because, yes, it does seem a bit uncomfortably, especially, I think it's more the times we are living in that make us feel a bit uncomfortable about it. I mean, he even uses this phrase later on, drive out foreign phrases, um, <laughs> which does sound a bit like ethnic cleansing. And again, ethnic cleansing, we'll get back to that euphemism later, I think. Yeah. But I think actually this is not a racial preference. I think this is Orwell saying we don't need to use scientific words when we are not discussing science. We do not need to use words from other countries to make ourselves sound plausible, to make ourselves sound intellectual. When you could say something that more people would understand. Again, I think we're getting back to Orwell's idea of whatever you say, the majority of people you are trying to communicate with should understand it. And I, I'm sorry, I keep using the word say when I mean write, yeah. uh, but it's hard not to conflate spoken and written language, isn't it? Well, let's think of a contemporary example of this. Uh, Boris Johnson, who is the Prime Minister of 
Great Britain. At time of recording. At time of recording, yeah. He is constantly using pretentious diction with Latin, because he, he studied the classics, I think. He's using Latin and Greek references and quotes from Kipling in everyday press conferences about coronavirus. And this is clearly his insecurity in his message or in his ability to put across a policy. And hence he uses pretentious diction to give legitimacy to what he's saying. And it is part of also building a persona, which is a form of propaganda. If I sound smart, I am smart in it. The Daily Mail laps it up, but I think a lot of people listening to it see through it. Have you not noticed in recent years, uh, recent months maybe, rather than recent years, he has been using more, not earthy, but uh, faux, pseudo... There's me using foreign diction, day-to-day -day language. Remember when he was talking about getting an oven-ready Brexit deal? Yeah. Because who's he appealing to in that? He's appealing to those who voted for Brexit, which, as we now know, demographically speaking, were people that came from working-class backgrounds in the Midlands and particularly up north. And hence, he's adapting his language to the audience to get a, a message across or to get a policy across. When he reverses the fox hunting ban, listen to the language he uses. In everyday English, do you notice uh, pretentious diction? Let me see. Probably more from myself <laughs> than anyone else. But mm. uh... Well, when I listen to other podcasts where they're debating, particularly political debates or social debates, and in the current climate of culture wars, I notice it all the time where I think people subconsciously know their argument is weak, so they litter it with pretentious diction, with superfluous words, hoping that that will camouflage uh, their dishonesty, camouflage their message, which is often cloaked in, in ideological meaning, and racism and prejudice. And again, this is the, one of the points that Orwell makes, that if you don't quite know what you want to say or you feel what you want to say is unpalatable, you cloak it using one of these uh, linguistic tactics. Yeah. It gives an example, I think, of the, the purges in Russia, in Stalinist Russia. Yes. So purge has a kind of, it's like a cleansing word, yes. a medically cleansing word. You're, you're purging the disease from your body. So that it's purposefully being chosen as the word to describe what was going on, which was, Murder. Yes. We've been giving examples from the right. We've been talking about Boris Johnson. We've been talking about people who are maybe prejudiced, but prejudiced, but don't want to be honest about that. But let's give an example from the left. A word that the left used to own was that of the elites, elitism, the elite class. Yet do you not find it's being taken by the right now? Could you give me an example? Brexit, Trump, it's all about the elites draining the swamp. Yes. They, they, they've taken the, the pretentious diction from the left and, and, and owned it. Which I think is a, an indication of populism of our age and how the right has, in a way, stolen the left's clothes in the past, whereas it would be the left saying... Uh, we need to we need to drain the swamp. We need to deal with the elites who have been mismanaging our country for so long. Now it is the right saying that. Another topic we can talk about with regards to pretentious diction is, is war. If we look at English speaking countries, we can look at the American Brit or the Allied in invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan post nine eleven. But it wasn't called invasion, was it? It was called liberation. Yes, and also that phrase, regime change. Regime change, axis of evil. Mm. This, is, this is all pretentious diction. Yes. U using a lexicon to, to camouflage dishonesty. Let's move on now to meaningless words. So meaningless, meaningless words are used to stop the reader from seeing the point of the state. What meaningless word do you think he really gets into in this essay? We've given some examples of the misuse of language from the right so far, but something Orwell writes about that really touches on his times and also touches on our times is the misuse of the word fascism. Yes, this is 
also something that really, really annoys me. And here we're gonna, I'm going to criticise the left. A comment I receive from people is that we, we, we are criticising the right too often in the podcast. Well, here we're going to criticise the left. Because the, the word fascist, fascism, is just being thrown around willy-nilly these days. If it's something people disagree with, they call it fascist. Yes, and Orwell in 1946 was writing, the word fascism has now no meaning except in so far as it signifies something not desirable. And he goes on to say that the words democracy, socialism, freedom, patriotic, realistic, justice are much the same. It really made me think also of the misuse of the word socialism, particularly in America. Uh, socialism is anything that will take away your freedom. In Britain, I don't think it's as much of a dirty word, but it reminded me of when David Cameron and um, Ed Miliband were still the leaders of the Conservative and Labour parties. And there was this moment during Prime Minister's question times when uh, David Cameron attacked Ed Miliband verbally, saying, you are irresponsible, left-wing and weak. Um, and it was conflating those three ideas. Yeah. And again, it makes me think of, you know, using left wing, which just describes a political position like socialism mm -hmm. and using it to mean something negative. Yeah. Just because you think it's negative. And Donald Trump's biggest in insult towards Joe Biden in the 2021 election was he's a socialist. Yes. I'm not sure if he's looked up the definition of socialist because Joe Biden is no socialist. It's a dirty word in American discourse, isn't it, socialist? But for them, universal healthcare is socialist. Welfare is socialist. Anything which goes against privatisation of individual rights is a socialist policy. Another word they, they love to use, well, in Britain and America, that gets thrown around is our freedom. I hate the misuse of the word freedom. When we invaded Iraq, we were giving them freedom. For, from what? From Saddam. And we gave them what in the place? That was ISIS. It was us dominating their economy. I don't think people are understanding the meaning of the word freedom when they throw it about. What do you think about that? No, it's quite right. And again, he makes the point about democracy or democratic, that um, almost every country, particularly after the Second World War, almost every country wants to say it is a democratic country. And, you know, makes me think of uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, German, Republic of Congo. Democratic. German Democratic Republic. Well, he said it is almost universally felt that when we call a country democratic, we are praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime claim that it is a democracy. It's just a word in these regimes which gives it legitimacy, as opposed to being a regime which practices the demo and crassy democratic principles. Can you think of a, of a word, a contemporary word that is being used dishonestly, that, that annoys you? I really didn't enjoy, <clears throat> whether you agreed with Brexit or not, I didn't enjoy how the word independence was used to promote the idea of Brexit. Yes. Bring, uh, give us that independence back. Without commenting on my own personal feelings on the matter, I do know that some people, people who are against Scottish independence, like to compare the opinions of Scottish nationalists and the opinions of Brexiteers um, because of this fetishization of the idea of independence. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying I personally believe that, um, because I think there are significant differences, but if you are relying on just one word to express your beliefs, then again, it can be misconstrued one way or the other. But in, in Scottish nationalism, is the, is the use of the word independence stopping the reader from seeing the truth behind the statement? I don't think it is. Whereas in Brexit, I believe it was. I, I think the people using the word independence in the Brexit argument, and I won't mention names, but it's of a French sounding surname, were using the word independence to camouflage from the reality of the argument. Not independence, but that was the word used to, to disguise 
the true meaning behind what they believed in. Whereas I don't think that's the case in Scottish nationalism. I think it's independence is being used quite honestly in, in, in that discourse. Mm. I would agree with you there. So having gone over these four main things he dislikes about the use of modern English, he then gives a really good example. Can you put it into some context for us? Yes, Orwell takes a passage from the Bible, the King James Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, perhaps you could read it out for us, Simon. So, so this is the ori original passage. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favour to men of skill, that time and chance happeneth to them all. And in modern English, this is how he believes it would be written. Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compels the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be consumer with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. So, Lewis, which did he prefer? He preferred Ecclesiastes, probably unsurprisingly. However, I agree with Orwell that the better version, stylistically, is the passage from Ecclesiastes. And I think it's the more beautiful version as well. However, and I, I would be really interested to hear how you feel about this, Simon. When I read the version in modern English, I found that I actually understood that version better than the version from Ecclesiastes, and that rather frightened me. And I think it speaks to how deeply that kind of language is ingrained in modern society, and particularly in academia. What, what do you think? Well, I agree with you that all of your reading that you've done throughout your education and professional life would have been written in what he's calling here modern English. So you're, you're more used to that. But what he likes about the original passage and what I like about it is its concreteness. Yes. Its directness. There can be no argument about the meaning of the first passage. Whereas with modern English in the second passage, it leaves a lot open to debate with regards to concreteness and meaning. Orwell writes, the whole tendency of modern prose is away from concreteness. Now, Simon, why do you think we have moved away from the concrete in prose? Well, he says, as I have tried to show, modern writing at its worst does not consist in picking out words for the sake of their meaning and inventing images in order to make the meaning clearer. It consists in gumming together long strips of words which have already been set in order by someone else and making the results presentable by sheer humbug. So he's basically saying it's easier. So this modern English in the way we are writing now, it's easier to do. It's putting together the prefab henhouse. There's a lack of having to dig deep within your own thought and expressing it through language. Do you think it also expresses a kind of ivory tower attitude to life because it reminds me very much of the passage earlier on where he points out the misuse of the metaphor the hammer and the anvil and yeah. um, Orwell says that most people think that in the relationship between the hammer and the anvil that it's the anvil that comes out of it worse whereas in fact yeah. if you've ever used a hammer and an anvil you know that the anvil can often break the hammer and that made me think very much, Orwell was a very practical man. He had a farm, a croft in Scotland for a while. Um, he loved gardening. Was that in Jura? It was Jura, yes. And he was very outdoorsy. So I imagine he'd seen a few hammers on anvils. Uh, yeah. He wasn't just a London-bound intellectual. Do you think this move away from concreteness represents the movement of the intellectuals away from the people. It seems a very kind of Marxist point to make. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, but I, I, it might be even more simplistic than that. I mean, convoluted jargon dilutes meaning and it disguises deficiencies in knowledge and it's a simple lack of confidence in the discourse that you're producing. So it, it's, it's a criticism of academia in general rather than just saying that they're moving away from, from people. And from general populace. In the next part of the essay, it's an important part of the essay because he gives his rules for writing and he says that when someone is writing they should ask themselves what am I trying to say? What words will express it? What image or idiom will make it clearer? 
is this image fresh enough to have an effect? And the writer will probably ask himself two more. Could I put it more shortly? Have I said anything that is avoidably ugly? So in the original passage, gender pronoun, in 1946, all the grammar books, well, I think until 1990, all grammar books said when you're speaking of a neutral gender, use the masculine. Yes, themselves. and not only that, but when I was at university and I decided to use they instead of he or she, I was told off for it, and that, was yeah. a, that wasn't a very long time ago. But, but now that's the accepted way to, way to use a gender pronoun, is they. Yes. And then, I mean, it's in the APA stylistics. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. So do I. And I think that we're dealing with a, a man born in 1903, died in 1950. I don't think we can judge him for not conforming to our idea of gender neutral language. I, I entirely agree. And especially when the grammarians and official gra grammar books are saying, use it as such. And I'm sure somebody in the year 2055 is listening to this podcast and criticising us for various ways we're using language, which at the time of recording are generally accepted. But wh where do you sit in general on um, gender pronouns? What about non-binary gender pronouns and well, tra again, transgender? <clears throat> we're getting into the realm of speech, or we're getting close to the realm of speech. Personally, I, my view is that it's the individual's choice, and I will call them, I will address them whichever way they want to be addressed. In the same way that if someone said, hello, my name is John, but I prefer to be called Jack, I would call that person Jack. I, I think it's just a matter of politeness, really. With, with regards to political writing, do you think some political writing is using gender pronouns purposefully to, to reach its audience? For example, uh, a left-wing writer will go out of his... I was going to say his or <laughs> Go out of their way. Fascist. <laughs> will go out of their way to to use sentences that include as many gender pronouns as possible to demonstrate their inclusiveness. Whereas somebody who's writing for a more right-wing publication will probably purposefully put himself yes. for a gender-neutral pronoun. Yeah. Knowing that the readers of that publication will enjoy that. Yes, and I have also noticed writers who are more feminist when they are talking about a hypothetical person they're more likely to say her and she when they're trying to make a point about what might be done by this hypothetical person. I've always been a bit of a fan of um, extreme extremism within certain movements as feminism, using the pronoun herself to displace the gender neutral pronoun of himself. Because I believe you have to be extreme to bring it back to the centre. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. There? So I've always quite enjoyed that. But <laughs> I don't think it's the way forward, but I, I, I appreciate when they do it. When using it. This is maybe why I always use they, because yeah. um, I'm... You're doing the right thing now. Well, yes. According and, to the modern grammar books. And I'm always, um, I'm always for compromise, you know, myself. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe that's why I use they. So now in a lot of universities, it's written within a contract of a lecturer that if you use gender pronouns politically, by that they mean purposefully using the masculine or the feminine when it should be neutral, you will be put before a tribunal. Is that right? Yeah, and can lose your job if it's done repeatedly. I've done it accidentally. Not himself, herself, but I'll say often him or her. I'll come and visit you in prison. <laughs> and therefore I'm excluding those who don't identify who are non-binary, identify as either male or female. Yeah, and, it, and it's not through any ideological ignorance on my part. It's just a, a, a mere linguistic slip of the tongue. And yes, because it's a slip of the tongue, it shows you how systematic the whole thing is. People like to say these things come down to personal preference, but because you're doing it automatically, it shows that you've grown up in a system which is skewed towards men, I would say. Yeah. How, how much gravitas do you give to to age in the use of, of words. So somebody who is in their later years making what we now deem to be linguistic mistakes, how much do you let them off the hook? Is that a dying metaphor? Let them off the hook? <laughs> you can use it in speech. We're talking about writing. We just throw dynamite in the water now to get the fish, don't we? 
<laughs> well, I don't don't know about you, but I. It really depends on the context. You can't you can't just have one blanket solution. If someone is a very well known academic who is writing and writes something that is no longer seen as acceptable linguistically, I would expect them to know better than say my relative who worked in uh, the dockyards for yeah. 50 years. So is there, is there any contemporary politician whose political language you enjoy? Yes, uh, I remember Obama was probably the last politician who I really enjoyed the speech of. And, you know, I would actually buy a book written by Obama. And he's probably the most recent politician uh, I remember saying when he was running for president that I liked him because he was an orator and it seemed he was returning to that very venerable tradition of Lincoln and Kennedy, uh, those American orators. But I mean, going back to Obama, yes, we can. Yes. Oh, please. It, no, it wasn't just yes, we can. It was his, it was his soaring rhetoric. It was the opposite of dumbing down, I felt. Yeah, okay. I mean, he, he gets a lot of plaudits for his oratory cap capabilities, doesn't he? And it's interesting that Orwell uh, mentions in the essay, when one watches some tired hack on the platform mechanically repeating the familiar phrases, bestial atrocities, iron heel, blood-stained tyranny, free peoples of the world stand shoulder to shoulder, one often has a curious feeling that one is not watching a live human being, but some kind of dummy. <laughs> I totally agree. That's how I feel watching a lot of political speeches now. You reminded me very much of, I made a note in the margin just above that, uh, where he writes, after writing about how the sloppy use of language can be used to hide unpleasant ideology or even a lack of ideology, yeah. he writes... It's at this point that the special connection between politics and the debasement of language becomes clear. And I have written the name of a very well-known politician in the margin. And he didn't say some of these phrases, but I just want to remind everyone of phrases like alternative facts. <laughs> the examples he gives of the defence of the indefensible are the continuance of British rule in India. This would have been just before Indian independence, wouldn't it? The Russian purges and its deportations, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan, can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face, and which do not square with the professional aims of political parties. What examples are there now of this kind of thing? I'll give you one off the bat. Privatisation of public schools. What's that? dressed up as in political speech now. Improvement, efficiency, competition. Yet what it is, is diverting wealth into fewer people's hands. And that word rationalisation as well, which throwing away half the books in a library is rationalisation. Mm -hmm. What I hate now is the um, managerial, managerial entrepreneurship of everything. Corporate jargon, prioritising the customer, efficiency, ratings. It, it, that annoys me how that's gone into, like the entrepreneurship of linguistics has crept into politics now. Where, where the most recent president of the United States was in himself a businessman and all the people around him were businessmen. You could hear it in the language. And Yeah, I'm not comfortable with how that's creeping into politics. What, what's your biggest gripe in political discourse at the moment or in political debate? It is the, and I think it was something that was around when Orwell was writing too, it is the reduction of complex situations into words, phrases of five words or less. You, you yes, don't we want can. To, yes, we can. Well, yes, we can. <laughs> take back control. It's, it's propaganda. It is propaganda pure and simple. Earlier on in the essay, Right at the beginning of the essay, 
Orwell states that the English language is in a bad way. Why might Orwell say the English language is in a bad way in 1946? There had been six, seven years of the English language being subordinated for the use of propaganda. Complex, the complex international situation had to be boiled down so that it could be put onto posters dig for victory, keep mum, keep calm and carry on, freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. Well, keep calm and carry on, that, that's become fashionable recently, yes. hasn't it? Since, posters everywhere. Since the financial crisis. Yeah, exactly. And but what are we supposed to carry on doing? Carry on buying things? Carry on... Carry on ignoring mm. the causes of the financial crisis, just keep calm and carry on. Don't actually look into why... We have now had to introduce austerity. That's another word. Austerity. Yes, because austerity is a word that is a euphemism for cutting benefits, slashing the budgets of public organisations, making disabled people do tests to see if they can work. Work for welfare. So I would say my biggest gripe in political discourse these days is ad hominem arguments. Why is that? It really irritates me because you're ignoring any form of criticism. You're ignoring having to answer the question, having to respond to what's been put against you. Lewis, you, you stole my whiskey. Well, you stole my raisins. Yes, but could you please respond to my accusation of having stolen my whiskey? Well, you also stole my cookies. You see what I mean? So um, if, I, if I'm somebody on the left, I'll probably say, hey, fascists, why are you so anti-multiculturalism? Why are the Proud Boys storming the capital? Well, what about Antifa? What about your socialist idea? Well, answer the question. Why are you not criticising these people for storming the capital? And it puts me in mind of propaganda again, and the effect of propaganda on thought, because... Uh, it is the gross simplification of the situation uh, to the point where you think this isn't about am I making a valid argument, it's about whether I am right and therefore whether I am a good person. Absolutely, yeah. So let's finish up by talking about what the solutions are to this decline of the English language and politics. So he says it's curable, and if I may quote him, he says, to begin with, it has nothing to do with archaism, with the salvaging of obsolete words and terms of speech, or with the setting up of a standard English, here, here, which must never be departed from. On the contrary, it is especially concerned with the scrapping of every word or idiom which has outworn its usefulness. It has nothing to do with correct grammar and syntax which are of no importance so long as one makes one's meaning clear, I agree, or with the avoidance of Americanisms, or with having what is called a good prose style. Now with that in mind, he gives a very famous six pointers to good writing in the English language. So I think we should go through each of those six points. And yes. Can you give me your thoughts on, on each one? So number one, never use a metaphor simile or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. I quite agree. Why? I think if you wish to write with originality, if you wish to put your thoughts across in a way that will make people view your argument as something fresh, then you need to put it into fresh terms and also this will help you as a writer to really focus on your meaning. He's worried about us copying what we see in print and rehashing it because it's easy. And also because that way ideology is made, we just repeat what people have told us as gospel. Exactly. So you agree with this one? Yes. I half agree. I, I think I often get a lot of inspiration from the use of metaphors in other people's language, other people's writings, and feel I can use it to my own means. 
but making a systematic habit of it is where I think he is what I think he's getting at. So I agree with him in that respect. Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do. What, what's your view on this one? Never use a long word where a short one will do. Again, this is about accessibility. This essay is for people who write for a living or at least spend a lot of time writing. Journalists, academics, people studying to become academics, people involved in politics. What I'm interested to hear, Simon, from you is, is it possible to avoid jargon? It's not possible to avoid jargon, but it's possible to use it in a manner which is befitting of the message you are trying to put across, not to camouflage dishonesty. What do you think about that? Can you think of any positive jargon? I know jargon's a negative word in its, in its meaning, but can you think of any jargon that can be good? Jargon can be used to create a feeling of community, can't yeah, it? Exactly. Um, you mentioned earlier, dig for victory. And yes. Like that. Well, to motivate people to come together in the common cause of food in a time of ration. Yes, and also um, in, say, a pamphlet circulated among a certain interest group, then jargon will make people feel part of that community, part of that interest group. And then you will recognise who belongs to your interest group by who can understand the jargon. But I think it's important not to use complex words when you want your message to reach the greatest number of people. Yes. And when he says long words, I think he means complex words, not because mm. some long words are quite easily understandable. So. No pasaran. That's bits of jargon I've always enjoyed. Yeah. And I'm sure that really, we'll talk about this in future podcasts, but that really motivated the people of Madrid to defend their city from an ideological enemy. Right, number three. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Yes, 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 and yes. Yes. So we both agree on that. We agree. No discussion. Number four. Never use the passive when you can use the active. I disagree here. I prefer the active, and I can see that it's aesthetically nicer to read. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Why do you disagree? It's contextual. Sometimes I think the passive is unavoidable. I think this is quite a childish rule by Orwell. Really? To, yeah, to never use the passive where you can use the active. Can you think of an example of where the passive might be necessary? Perhaps not necessary, but of, of no differentiation. Like, Lewis, you think it's Lewis, like... Lewis uh, shut the door. The door was shut by Lewis. Is there really any differentiation there in, in the message I'm trying to get across? Well, I suppose the main difference is the who you focus on in your mind. Do you focus on the door or do you focus on Lewis in that sentence? I, 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 yes, but I don't think there's any political or ideological meaning between either. I think of all his arguments about the use of language, metaphors, etc. I think this is the one where he's, it's, it's just, I don't think it adds to his argument. This is the one point where a lot of people diverge from him and say, of all your reasoning here, this one's a bit nitpicky. But we'll agree to disagree. Or we have been disagreeing in the occasion of agreement. Number five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. I disagree. I'm more in line with Orwell again here. I think if you want to express an idea as clearly as possible, you need to avoid jargon because that will exclude some people. You need to avoid foreign phrases because... Why do people Touché. use? But why do people use foreign phrases even to this day? I would say so people, they don't commit a faux pas. People use foreign phrases. I would say even to this day, as a kind of. I think we're going down a colder circuit. Oh, give me strength. <laughs> people use foreign phrases to give an idea that they are elevating their discourse. They are educated. Parce que c'est plus romantique. <laughs> so we disagree. Again yes, we disagree. we disagree. We <laughs> disagree. And we have a we have a different Weltanschauung. <laughs> right, the final point, number six, and he's saying this humorously. Uh, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright 
barbarous. By barbarous, does he mean say something horrific, something offensive, or ugly? Ugly. You think it means means ugly? He's left himself open to attack here because of the ambiguity of his final point. And he is just trying to be funny. But what I do think he means ugly. How about you? What, What do you think he means by barbarous? I thought that he meant something offensive, something indefensible. Again, going back to those ideas. A slur. Yes, a slur, a hateful ideology, that sort of thing. But to finish off, I think it would be amiss to not mention criticisms of this essay. And we should bear in mind who is being victimised by his attack in this essay. Journalists, politicians and academics, which is probably not a a trident of groups you really wish to to attack, (laughs) seeing as public discourse is more or less based around those three groups. And this essay has gone in and out of fashion. In the 60s and 70s, it was a part of all English literature courses. And then in the 90s and 2000s, with the advent of post-structuralism, it's kind of gone out of fashion. And then very recently, it's coming back in fashion. So some of the um, criticisms. Do we believe in the absoluteness of the English language? How do you mean absoluteness? Well, we were just joking about it before with foreign influences and assuming that plain English, and, and which, which I think he's trying to mean to be pure English, is the only way to express yourself politically and, and socially. I think the problem is these days we don't like to be prescriptive and Orwell was nothing if not prescriptive in so much of his writing. But you know what? I agree with him. I think we really need to make our language, especially if we're writing about ideology, we need to make it as clear as possible. And I think really what Orwell is saying in this essay is um, think hard about what you want to say and express it in a way that anyone could understand. And then we can move on to whether what you're saying is helpful to the political situation or not. Don't just throw out worn out phrases, propaganda. Tell us clearly why you feel this way. And then we can maybe move on to a dialogue. Okay. Next criticism. This is actually mine. This essay is about how the convoluted language is camouflaging dishonesty in politics. But I would say now, in the contemporary age, straightforwardness is now being used to dress political meaning. I would agree with that. We mentioned earlier um, Boris Johnson's shift from being the Latin and Kipling-quoting toff to becoming the man who says things like oven-ready deal. And And, and every speech Donald Trump has ever given. This is my personal criticism. I I just believe the register of language is more complex and fluid than Orwell gives it credit for and can be used to justify any means. But in the context of when he wrote the essay, he's just come off from the Second World War and he's he's looking at Stalinism in the face. So I can understand what he means by, by that thing. A final criticism we should address is, um, in this essay, is he not advocated advocating a stunted lexicon? For example, he, he speaks a lot in 1984 about newspeak and the mass rendering of words obsolete, yet he's encouraging us to make an awful large chunk of the lexicon obsolete. I think in 1984, the words that are being made obsolete are words that are inconvenient to the party, but... In this essay, Orwell is suggesting that the words that are obsolete are the words which do not allow us to think for ourselves, the words which are euphemisms, the words which have been used so much that we don't consider their true meaning and which we can just read while switched off rather than actually engaging with the text. Good point. And finally, he's a little in Englander, isn't he, Lewis? No, Orwell is not a little Englander. Orwell is a writer who likes to seem like a little Englander, 
who likes to seem like the man who likes his pint of ale and uh, Saxon words. But if you read Orwell, you will see that there is actually a much more complex point that he wants to make about independence of thought, freedom from any particular ideology, overarching ideology in your life, and above all, the idea of simplicity. And that's not just simplicity in speech, but it's the rejection of adornment, whether that is... French word, by the way. Do as I say, not as I do. The rejection of things that hide our true nature. I agree. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Orwellian with me, Lewis. And me, Simon. Pretentious foreign diction there. (laughs) We have an email address. We'd love to hear from you. It's orwellpod at gmail.com. And now this is our third recorded podcast. I think we should mention that we are available on Google Pods, iTunes, Amazon Music, and I believe we're also on Instagram. Yes, uh, or we will be soon. And I am creating a Facebook page this century. So uh, that's it. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you're reading along, our next essay will be The Art of Donald McGill, one of my personal favourites. Thanks very much, everyone. See you later.